Hello and welcome to this week's Movie Magpies. We're going to be looking in depth at Joker, just as a quick warning for mental illness and scenes depicting graphic violence. I'm your host, as always, Will, and with me is my co-host, Monique. Without further ado, let's get straight into it. We've already discussed a little bit about colour, music, and the sort of socioeconomic side of this movie in our review. Is there anything in particular that you wanted to bring up? Well, I kind of wanted to expand on that now with the knowledge that we can spoil the film in any single way and we don't have to worry about actually spoiling the film for any of our viewers. So if you are new to the in-depth review, we will talk about the whole film in all of its parts and we'll end up spoiling it either way. With that said, you've been warned, if you haven't watched the film, then you can come back to this later without fear of it being spoiled for you. But looking back on the film in terms of... I'm gonna start with the score because the score for me is one of the really standout parts of the film. One thing I found really nice about it is that it does a really good job of lying to us or persuading us in the film to be on side with Arthur. Well, in very much of the same way that you would be on side with a hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely understand what you're talking about. Yeah, in that the, the music for his moments of triumph still build in the same way in which a triumphant hero would achieve victory or in a moment of victory and things like that, whether or not it's in Arthur's head or not. And so it provides this sense of persuasion or the sense of deception that the film is not completely honest with us in terms of what's inside Arthur's head and what's really going on in the world and the composition and the music is used perfectly in that sense in that it helps double down on that in a great way. Yeah, no, I completely get what you mean. They bring this very, very eerie yeah. string music into the background. And in those moments, yes, we're still made to feel like the triumphs and rises, but they also do a very good job of mixing that still with the tension of, oh my gosh, this man just shot someone. Yeah. I think the composition and so will credit her here so the composer is Hildur Gondottir so that's a name that I really struggled to pronounce I'll try I'll try my best I probably won't keep coming back to her full name but she did the composition for Joker and she did an incredible job because her use of sound and score and music helps guide our perception of Arthur and I want to really provide an example and this is a huge spoiler with the final big scene in which Arthur has become the Joker he's done the full makeup and get up to go on Murray's show with the intention that he's going to shoot himself in the head mm-hmm. and kill himself live on air but the music the composition plays in a sad swaying swaying like crescendo and and mood and presents a mood that is just sad in that in a stereotypical story in which the hero dies this music would fit perfectly but with Arthur he's killed people who didn't necessarily deserve it and yeah. he's he's a murderer he's done terrible things but the music still sways and builds in that same sense that we're watching a hero almost sacrifice himself for the, for the greater good 
but his greater good is revenge and so we feel icky about it but we still have you still are given that sense that in the pit of your stomach that it's almost this sacrificial scene where he's giving himself up and then of course it doesn't go that way specifically but I wanted to really highlight that scene in terms of composition because it just sounds incredible and the whole film sounds incredible of course but that's the one scene where I can always remember most vividly in my head. Which is super interesting because I think my one scene is just after he's shot the three like rich boys on yeah. the train and he's dancing in the bathroom. Oh yeah, that, that, that is a good scene. That is the one that I suppose musically sounds out the most to me because obviously he's dancing as sort of almost a self-soothing motion. Yeah. He dances to get rid of that panic and the fear that he's got. And they do such a good job of balancing the music. The music is very regal, it's very calming, but mm. it has that unsettling twinge to it. Like it's just Yeah, it has this underlying sinisterness. Yeah. yeah. And I that to me will always be the scene that I come back to when I think of the music. Yeah, uh, that's just because the visuals and the music together in that scene really make me so like it just hit me in such a way. Yeah, and I think that also can lead quite seamlessly onto continuity in that Arthur's character is very consistent in a way, in that this has nothing to do with sound, I'm kind of moving, I'm bridging off from that, but in terms of continuity, which is another part of film which is greatly ignored and underrated, Arthur ha is very consistent as a character in that when he is anxious or wants to feel confident about himself, he dances, and it's his little way of trying to build confidence up in himself. And I think that the fact that it keeps being brought back in the film is really, really clever and really nice to see because it adds this consistency in what is otherwise a unpredictable film. Yeah, because the film almost jumps around yeah absolutely like, everything's pretty much chronological but it also doesn't feel like it is i suppose would be the way yeah that i put it like i felt very disorientated timeline wise with this movie that's fair so I think, it's almost yeah. the dancing scenes are almost not just grounding for arthur but grounding for the the audience and the viewers in my opinion because it is a sort of steady reoccurring event like it's very easy for us to go oh okay he's dancing nothing terrifying yeah. is gonna happen in the next minute or so you know you're kind of like weirded out by it because he's just killed three guys and then he's like dancing but you're also like okay this is a time to recollect my thoughts what have we seen what's happened how much of it do i trust because actually this is one thing I wanted to point out, because this is an un a very unpredictable film, and how much of it do you think is actually in Arthur's head? I feel like a great deal of it is in Arthur's head. He evidently goes to... It's actually, interestingly, Arkham Mental yeah. Hospital, rather than Arkham Asylum. Well, in this, like, it's... Here's the thing, Slightly I just I just want to point this out very quickly because I grew up reading the Batman comics. I really liked Batman as a kid and going into adolescence I read Hush, I read Court of Owls, I read The New 52, which was one of my favourite comics, which is a revamping of Batman's story, which 
some people probably don't believe was necessary, but I really enjoyed it. But in terms of the Arkham point, Arkham is the name of a psychiatrist who funded a lot of the mental health stuff, so I Arkham Hospital probably made a lot of sense because he was probably just, his name was put on a hospital and then he probably also still had an asylum as well. Oh, okay. I just thought... That's what I'm thinking, but... Fair enough. I just noticed that instead of going with asylum, they went, like, with mental facility or hospital or whatever the words are. Yeah, well, I think that's that's more just because... Because if you're unwell, you go to a hospital. If you're too unwell for anything... Well, if you're too mentally unwell for your own good and to cause harm to others, or you're criminally insane, which was what the asylum was for, then you would go to an asylum. And that's what I, why I think there is, why I would point out the distinction, but that right. is still fair. Okay. It is interesting that that still exists. And I do like the, yeah. the notions back to the original comics, because in Joker, the film that the Waynes walk out of before they get mugged and the two parents, um, Martha and Thomas, are killed, is Zorro, which was in the original comics they left after watching Zorro, which I liked because it, it, again, it reconnects back to the original source material, which I really like. Even though the story is not from the original source material, it still has that respect for the, the predecessors and the stories that came before it and what it was ultimately inspired by. And I like that a great deal. Mm-hmm. But I was actually going to say, returning to what's inside Arthur's head or not, I, for me, I genuinely think that all of this is real to a certain extent, but there are sections that he makes up in his head. And I wanted to point that out because specifically the train scene, which we were talking about before we started talking about Arkham Hospital specifically, <laughs> you don't see, you see him getting kicked and beaten up, but you don't see him pull out the gun. The next frame you see is a bullet going through the guy. There's this interesting dichotomy in that you could almost believe that this is where it starts to go in his head where maybe he already had the gun out and was ready to fire and he wasn't getting beaten up and he just decided to shoot or stuff like that. One little easter egg that it's one of the only easter eggs that I'm actually going to point out about the stuff that is inside Arthur's head I know there is stuff like all the clocks are set to the same time and they never change like all that stuff I'm not super interested in that more specifically the gun that he has is like a six shot revolver he fires eight shots in total and doesn't reload and this is one of the bits that for most people who have looked at it in depth always harp back to as being this is a point that's in his head because he's fired too many shots into the into these people and he hasn't reloaded so it's clear that he's embellishing this story in a certain way and I think that's really cool that because clearly they did that as intentionally and I really like that yeah um, and it's really interesting to me I think is in other movies that we've watched if that happened we'd almost write it off as a mistake but this movie is really intentional with those sort of little details even if they're not things that the average viewer would notice when you asked me is it all in his head I was going to say it's very interesting to me because obviously there are very real consequences to his actions Yeah. but one of the things that I was going to say is he goes to Arkham and gets a file on his mother yeah and has this 
sort of culture shocked realization that he didn't actually have a good childhood with his mother. He's probably repressed most of the things that happened to him in his childhood. But yeah. as he's reading the report, he's we get a shot of the mother's sort of like assessment, interrogation, whatever you want to call it. And yeah. he's standing in the corner of the room watching as his adult self. And I thought personally that was a really good play on a lot of like a really good tell I suppose that yes a lot of the things that are happening have real world consequences but Arthur definitely is very good at visualizing things in his head like it was one of those moments where it felt yeah. like a flashback and then you realize oh no he's just Imagining experiencing it. this yeah. through the report that he's reading he's probably done that multiple other times in the film like yeah. that was my uh, oh, okay, so he actually is imagining a lot of stuff. Yeah, almost as if he has some sort of proficiency in building things within his head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do really like the sense that there are definitely sections that are just in his head. The stuff with Sophie, are very clear sections of this unconscious or conscious desire to have someone in his life who is just positive around him or supportive and then it turns out to not be true and be this like 500 days of summer kind of thing where it's mostly in his head oh spoilers for 500 days of summer um <laughs> but like i said this is the risk of joining the in-depth thing you're going to get shit spoiled and it may not be from this movie i do find that really interesting and in the sense of continuity and the consistency in the film one thing i really wanted to point out is that the film does continuity well and that's why when they break continuity as like with the bullets and the gun it's done remarkably well and re- and very clearly with intention so it's also done so subtly though i suppose would be it like it's very remarkably well done and it's done with intention but it's also something that unless you were digging into the theories on this film or you were really looking for that moment yeah it's not something that you'll see. Even going into my second watch, knowing that a lot of the clocks were set to the same time, I still ended up so enraptured with the movie that I even forgot to like check for yeah. it. Like I was like, oh, remember to look at the clocks. And then there'd be like a clock in the scene and I would just like glaze past it because yeah. whatever was actually happening in the scene. And I think it's because this film doesn't beat you over the head with its secrets, which I think is great. But as I was saying with continuity, this, the little things that end up being consistent end up making this film, end up providing this deception that the film is more trustworthy, such as with the bus scene riding home from his day at work where he gets beaten up and the sign that he's like flipping is just broken over him. On the bus riding home, he's still got makeup or paint on his face from his clown makeup. Just these little bits where probably a face washer or makeup remover probably wouldn't have reached you if he was just wiping it off, wiping his hand over his face. So it's it's like little things like that that seem really quite impressive. The film really sort of does build up its reputation. I suppose that's a weird way, but the film builds itself as a reputable source. Yeah, no, that's um, only exactly to what I that think against too. You later. Yeah, um, absolutely. I suppose is sort of what I'm getting from what you're saying is yeah. that it definitely takes that moment to be like, look at us, look at, we can have all the continuity. Like we're really making sure that this movie makes sense. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not like well, we'll hold you into a false security in a way. 
Yeah, it does that very with a very clear set of intentions in that where it doesn't need to be consistent, it remains consistent. So then in the points where it's subtly tricking you into believing what Arthur is telling you or making you think, you're more unaware of it because everything else has been so steadily consistent. And in that sense, it never steps out of the realms of belief where you're led on this path where you're being led by multiple different means, you know, the director, the writer are all doing this very specifically, the the composer all working together to make this all seem completely believable in the realms of story writing, but underneath all of that, it's still pushing this little storyline, this little underlying truth that there are little bits within this film that aren't actually true, and you're not going to know exactly when they are, because we've dotted them in moments of realism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really, really enjoy the way that the film handles its uh, unreliable narration. Yeah, that's exactly what it is as well. But moving on from that kind of section to what we talked about very minutely, I wanted to talk about framing again, because in the 30-minute review, we talked about how there was painstaking measures to ensure that very little of the sky was visible in the movie. But I wanted to talk about more specifically why that's done, because there's a specific reason why this is done, and I only became more acutely aware of it because I watched Parasite, the Bong Joon-ho film about a family that integrates themselves within a wealthier family in South Korea. They use a lot of this framing technique as well, but in a different way, in which the family that are on the poorer side of their society are constantly looking up and they rarely get to see the sky from their house. In Joker, Joker is constantly in this point, and the framing constantly reflects that. We never get to see the sky or the city skyline. We get to see little sections of sky, but they're often clouded or obscured by something else so i think i can't say yeah, for certain a, yeah. like a specific number wasn't there of how yeah. many times the sky shows i can't up. say for certain but i remember specifically three shots within the film where there is sky one of which is him climbing up the stairs from a long day of work the sky there is minute within the frame it is overcast and there is pretty much nothing to see in the sky so it is so easily ignored the second point that i remember seeing was behind arkham hospital and that shot also overcast but then also obscured by the arches of the hospital so then there is less of it visible and then the last shot i know specifically is when he is climbing back down the stairs fully realized as joker and we see more of the sky than we've seen before but it's slowly disappearing as he gets lower and lower down the stairs in that he could have reached the light but chose not to and that's the symbolism of this framing is that it's the poorer of these communities both in parasite and in joker they never get to see the light from an equal footing you're always either looking up at it and you barely get to see it or you're being dragged away from it and you're seeing less and less of it and that's why this framing is so interesting because the greatest way you can convey visual storytelling through cinematography is through framing framing of a scene the framing of a character the way you 
pull focus on them, but most specifically in this term, in Joker, the way you frame the world around them. Joker is a very simple character, but very easy to get wrong. If you yeah. highlight them through their environment, then they become easier to get right, but not discrediting them to any way, it's easier to make them great. Yeah, I suppose in that sort of sense, the Joker as a character is a very superficially simple character. He's yeah. out for chaos, he causes mayhem, and he doesn't have any reason to do it other than to cause unrest and upset amongst yeah. Gotham. But there is a lot more under the surface. Like, he is, in fact, the antithesis to Batman, who is, of course, got a very rich history and backstory. Yeah. So the fact that they use the environment and their framing to show that is... Yeah. It's, I will it's something say... that even I didn't notice. Like, yeah. until you pointed it out, it wasn't something that I noticed, but it was definitely what added to the feeling of this being a really good depiction of the yeah. Joker. One thing I will say is I only recognized it just now as we were talking, but there is also, I do remember another scene with Sky in it, but it actually helps reinforce my point in that when Arthur goes to see Wayne Manor, there is Sky visible within the scene. However, it's all trapped behind the gates of Wayne Manor, thus working with the symbolism that the wealthy get to see the sky and the poor only get to dream of it. Which and, is yeah. really interesting symbolism considering mm. the subplot of the film about the socioeconomic gap. Yeah, and I think that the Joker handles the socioeconomic gap commentary quite well. Not nearly as well as Parasite. I would say if you want to watch something that talks about this kind of gap, definitely watch Parasite. We'll be reviewing it at some point in the near future, but if you want to get to it before we do, check it out because it does that all really well because there's no no necessary good guy or bad guy in these debates of economical hierarchy but there is definitely a sense that the wealthier individuals are doing the most damage because they are capable of changing what's going on for everybody but they choose not to and only choose to elevate themselves further and that's not moral and it helps build this reflection between Arthur and Thomas Wayne in a later scene that neither one of them is necessarily a good character but you feel more empathy for Arthur because what he's doing the wrong that he is doing he's doing for a certain reason whereas the wrong Thomas is doing he's doing because he doesn't care about that section of yeah, the world. Yeah, it's either that he doesn't care or that he's doing it to lift himself yeah. further up than he already is. Like, he's already got everything, so the fact that he's sort of in the same moral standing as Arthur just makes yeah. him seem like a shittier person in that like in that comparison because you have so much. Why are you still so bad? Yeah, but with that, I've kind of tried to sneakily steer us towards a point. How do you feel about the depiction of the Waynes in this film? I think it's a very interesting depiction. I know that a lot of other Batman-related paraphernalia shows the Waynes as almost these good graces. Like, you know, yeah. oh, they're so kind, they use their wealth to help the city, the city fell into disrepair when they died, you know, sort of that. 
vibe yeah. and it was really really interesting to see it played the other way especially in the end and the fact that the death coming out of the scene we've already uh spoken about the easter eggs pertaining yeah. to batman lore in the comics but the fact that their deaths are brought on by the riot and unrest caused by the wealthy abusing their power yeah it was such an interesting take i really really enjoyed watching it and i really enjoy how subtle the subplot is um of the wealth are using their power and the less fortunate are unable to do anything to get themselves out of bad situations yeah and yet how very clearly you could walk away from this movie and not like you can't really walk away from this movie unless you're blatantly trying to and miss that yeah i find and i think yeah i was just gonna say i think the wanes to depict that sort of evil of the higher-ups a puts a face to it which is one of those things you should always put a face to something yeah if you want it to come off more impactful but also it really helps drive it home because people can't walk out of the theater and be like oh the wanes are still rich and they're super nice because they weren't in this movie yeah and i think that what's really interesting is that the wealthier are more framed through their apathy for these for the poorer people within Gotham and I find that really interesting because during one of the bigger protests where they're protesting an event that the Waynes are going to and then Arthur sneaks into it during the chaos of the protests outside we come to find that the wealthier just watching a Chaplin film and it's this it's this weird interesting and visually striking scene where the poor of Gotham are trying to get through to the wealthy of Gotham and the wealthy of Gotham ignore them and I'm literally yeah. sitting around watching a show yeah and completely almost oblivious to what's happening outside yeah and I think it's the the, the monument of this story in that the apathy leads them towards ignoring the poor until it becomes too late and then their fear is built more upon a threat to their livelihood more so than a failing to do right by them which Mm -hmm. is quite interesting to me but with the point that you pointed out the riots led straight on to Thomas and Martha Wayne's death I wanted to specifically bring that scene up because we see the scene that arguably we've seen at least three times now in which Martha and Thomas are killed and it's always the same way it's in an alley it's a guy coming by and shooting them this scene specifically doesn't matter which film it comes from has been heavily criticized by reviewers because it's just so unoriginal and in Joker a film that is completely original it does the same thing again. And I didn't bring it up in my in the review, but I wanted to bring it up here because it's more something that I just want to talk about in depth, where the Wayne murder scene has been so heavily redone that it almost has become cliche to show it that way. Because they both also... Yeah, they also do it in Gotham, the TV yeah, series. Yeah, yeah, but it's both incredibly cliche and incredibly iconic. Like, the pearls, specifically, I think is the thing that I remember most from it, is gunshot and the pearls getting ripped is such like an iconic Batman in imagery. Yeah, um, my problem with that is that it can't be iconic because it's been reused multiple times in scenes. To be iconic it would have to be shown once and remembered forever. 
whereas it's been shown multiple times and has been ingrained. Right, okay. Which is why I, I respectfully disagree with you there in that I don't think it's iconic, I think it's an ingrained point. And this leads me on to a new little thing that I wanted to do. It's not a new bit, it's not like my pointless research specifically, but I wanted to talk about how to maybe make something better or try something different. I am intrigued. So this scene specifically has been seen quite a few times. I would say four times on screen and many multiple times in the comics with a few differences to it like in uh, Flashpoint in the Flash universe where he's changed the past and Bruce and Martha are killed so Thomas becomes Batman. So he's an older, more hardened version of Batman who's who uses guns and is less merciful to criminals and stuff like that. There are different ways that's done, but it always kind of kind of shows it off the same way. I feel like film directors are missing missing a trick, and I don't think it could be used for Joker, but in the new 52, the oh, the first few comics actually focus very heavily on Commissioner Gordon when he was just just a um I don't want to say private because he's not a private. It's not the army. He's a officer in the police force. Sort of when he was still a street cop. Yeah, like, street rather cop. Than a yeah, so there is this incredible series of well, there's this incredible part in one of the first editions of the Batman New 52, which focuses completely on Gordon, where the night of the Wayne's murder, Gordon had found out that his partner was helping participate in illegal dogfights. The night the Waynes were murdered, he went to go confront him and was attacked by dogs. By wild dogs. Well, hungry, desperate dogs who were gonna kill him. His, yeah. part, his partner set those dogs on him, leading to outlining the corruption that is inherent within Gotham's heart. We get to see that corruption in Gotham's heart through Gordon, a partner that he trusted, came to betray him for personal gain. And almost a sense of enjoyment because Gordon meant nothing to him, he was just another partner who mysteriously died on the beat. Yeah. Gordon is also the first responder to the Wayne murder. He's the first one to get there to get to Bruce and make sure that he's okay. He throws his jacket over Bruce and comforts him as an ambulance takes away his parents in body bags. If you framed it through Gordon's eyes, because like I said, it's not going to work for Joker, we don't need to introduce Gordon into this film, but for other Batman films, if you're going to redo the Batman, which they are doing, I think they're going to leave out the origin. But if you do have it in there, why not look at it through Gordon's eyes? We get to see one of the worst nights he's ever been on, but it's just, it's every single night for him. And then he gets a radio call in his car saying that there's been a homicide, two dead, a kid left there. We know what that means. We've seen that fucking scene so many fucking times. And then he goes and responds to it. Yeah, I suppose I can see what you're getting at. While you've been talking, the sort of vibe that I've been getting is almost that the, the Wayne parents' murder. Mm. The vibe that I've been getting is the Wayne parents' murder is so ingrained and so overdone that it's been depersonalized. Yeah. And a way to repersonalize that sort of corruption at the heart of Gotham is to look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. And I think it's a really good sort of idea that you have there where you look at it through Commissioner Gordon's eyes because to us, if that's our first introduction, we're going, oh my gosh, he's going through so much. So much has happened. But for him, he's just like, yep, oh gosh, and now I have to deal with this yeah. new thing. 
and it all seems very mundane to him. He gets yeah. up after having shot, having had to shoot two dogs who were going to kill him, and gets up, mends his wounds, and goes back on the beat. And it's this sense where we get an idea of who Jim Gordon is. He's this un, not unstoppable cop. He's this human who is doing right by Gotham because he has to, because without him the city would fall apart. Mm-hmm. And then he gets a call on his radio saying, two dead, one still on the scene. And he's like, on my way. And it shows the dedication that he has despite the corruption innate within the city that he loves. And nobody's done it. Nobody's fucking done it. They had Gotham, which was a TV series about Jim Gordon, and they didn't do it. I know, and it. they still managed to miss the point with Jim. <laughs> yeah, like, but in that G- scene. Gotham sucks. Like, oh, I'm just gonna say it. Gotham, the TV series, is garbage. It's not something that we're talking about, but it has a chronic diagnosis of we're going to reuse the same plot point every single season. But I completely get what you're talking about. They need to re-humanize the the struggle for Gotham. Gotham. Yeah, the struggle for Gotham is actually a really good sentence. They need to re-humanize the struggle for Gotham because currently, the struggle for Gotham has been depersonalized because we've all seen it so many times we're desensitized to it yeah, and it absolutely. no longer has that same I don't want to I don't want to see those fucking pearls hit the pavement one more time all right I'm sick of it <laughs> genuinely and if there and are, I get where you're coming from now yeah if there are any directors listening feel free to take that you don't need to credit <laughs> me you maybe send me something send me like a message on something and just say hey I like what you where your head's at that's all I need, alright? <laughs> as long as you can... Because there's there are so many avenues to explore the corruption of Gotham. This film does it incredibly well because it does it from a different person's perspective. We don't look at it through Batman's perspective. And I love Batman, but I'm sick of seeing his perspective on corruption in Gotham because he's a rich man who's been rich his entire life. He didn't earn a single fucking penny of it. And he chooses, oh, instead of creating... Like, this is one of my biggest gripes with the with Batman as a character is that instead of creating ways to support the poor and homeless of Gotham, he decides to dress up as a bat and beat up criminals. <laughs> but um, I but, might just pull us a little. Yeah, I was going to say moving back <laughs> into back into Joker, this perception of the corruption in Gotham is incredibly well done, and as we focus more heavily on the more vulnerable in this movie, we should talk about the supporting characters. So, what did you think of Peggy, Arthur's mother? I was just about to say, is that the mother? Excuse me. Yes. The mother is incredibly interesting to me, because at first she's depicted, well, at first, I mean, there's always an underlying, unsettling aspect to a lot of the characters in this movie. But at first she's just depicted as sort of senile, and she has this almost unwavering love for Thomas Wayne. Yeah. And you think, oh, because she comes from a time before the corruption was so bad and she still believes in her old age that the Waynes, or specifically those in higher standing, will see what's... don't realise how bad it's gotten. Yeah. Um, it's As not if that it's they just don't a mistake. Care. Yeah. Yeah, it's that they haven't... they haven't seen it's being kept yeah. from them. And they're going to come and they're going to help us out and they're going to see what we're living like and 
they're gonna turn everything around for us and then later in the movie you find out it's because she definitely had imagined in fact to the point of obsession a relationship yeah. between herself and Thomas to the point where she adopted Arthur and managed to convince herself that in fact she had had him yeah. as a bastard with Thomas and there's always that underlying like in the first bit you're like oh she's just like from a time before the corruption and she believes that the high society still care about them when it's clear they don't because she's mm. old and she's senile and it very very quickly becomes something more sinister which yeah. is very interesting to me. And I find it quite interesting because with her characters more specifically, we don't disagree with her or we don't disbelieve her because we have no evidence to state the contrary. So in a normal staple of film and storytelling, you go, okay, I'll put a pin in that and I'll consider it the going truth for now. But it holds for most of the film until right at the end which I find really interesting because we're given this sense that this is the the held truth that she has a good relationship with Thomas Wayne. Oh, there may have been something more to her relationship with Thomas Wayne. He seems like a bit of a scumbag, so it may actually make sense. There's a little bit of confirmation bias in that sense. So then we're more likely to believe her and then we get this sense when Arthur meets Alfred and his response to hearing Arthur say that Peggy had told him everything, that it's very clear that there's more going on about that and that yeah. Peggy is less reputable, then we definitely didn't believe that she was completely honest, for sure. But we definitely still thought that there would be something there. And then to be provided with the sense that there is actually nothing there, is, it's really or nothing, that, po nothing positive there is really compelling. Yeah, I suppose for me the really interesting part of that is when you first do get to see that scene where the confirmations are kind of rocked a little bit, your bias still for a very split second you go, oh, they're mm. trying to cover it up. And then later they're like, oh no, it just completely was entirely false the entire time. Like, yeah. she imagined this scenario and so yes there is something between her and Thomas but it is the fact that she almost pretty much was harassing him in a way yeah. and making his life harder all the more for it because of her obsession with him and the fact that he was rich and handsome and yada 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 yeah it's it's really well done it's very good way of this and I think we've said this a couple times but the movie does a really good job of leaning into these biases and making you think that it's trustworthy only to turn around and be like hang on why did you think we were trustworthy that's not yeah. what we were doing you know yeah and I think that's really good moving on more to some of the other characters the slightly lesser characters with Reggie who very much seems like the overarching kind of bully for Arthur's character arc. The guy who gives him a gun and then intentionally does it so that he could get Arthur fired, but then keeps coming back, pretending to be a friend to Arthur. And I think originally it's not out of a sense of fear, it's out of a sense of almost contempt and a sense that he wants to make fun of this mentally ill man for his own amusement. And I think that definitely puts him up there as one of the worst kind of characters, the most unlikable of the characters in this is film. That he, yeah, he has almost a deeper understanding 
of what uh, Arthur is going through on a surface level than most of our other characters because he's around him at work and he sees how he's treated and the sort of things that happen to him on the daily and still decides to be one of those things that is making his life worse for no other reason than he thinks that he can get away with it. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting point of difference between him and Gary in that Gary's presence is minute, but he reaches out to Arthur out of a sense of concern. And it may not be concerned because he cares about Arthur, because I don't think it's that. I think it's more that he has a sense of pity for Arthur in a weird way, because he doesn't have to go out of his way to be nice to Arthur. He could just go about his business and then the final scene we see him in he doesn't even need to really be there, but he's there anyway because he almost has this sense of guilt. Or, Re- I suppose, responsibility. Yeah, um, residing, yeah. It's less guilt and more he feels like, oh, this man's been through a lot and he's obviously mentally unwell. I'm going to go and check up on him because we heard that his mother died. You know, like that yeah, sort of absolutely, uh, but interesting vibe. I find it really interesting because the final scene that they have with these characters, with Arthur and Reggie and Gary, is really interesting because for Reggie, his sense of contempt and his perception of Arthur is twisted in this moment and like forcefully twisted where his treatment of Arthur becomes the only foundation of which he should be afraid of Arthur in that I think both of them recognize that this individual Arthur is unhinged, well not unhinged, but mentally unwell very clearly and when they come to see him they know that he's gone over the edge and for Reggie he knows oh shit I shouldn't have come here I was gonna come here to try and make fun of him again because that's very clearly there in his in the forefront of his mind where he was gonna try and fuck with Arthur again kick him while he was down yeah kick him while he was down for the millionth time yeah that's pretty much all he does and the last time we'd seen him Arthur takes a jab at him and there's clearly a sense of resentment from Reggie at that point but it's almost a stopping point in this final scene where he was going to kick him while he's down and then now that he's seen that it's too late for any kind of sense well for any attempt to try and bring Arthur down to where he used to be he knows that it's over and then he gets killed mm-hmm. there's that sort of and in fact this is the one part of the pacing that I quite enjoy is yeah. that a lot of more gratuitous and violent scenes are played very quickly are played very chaotically to the point yeah, where you absolutely. Go, wait what what happened huh Um, Yeah, not stuck dwelling too much in those scenes, which is great. Exactly. And then, of course, you have the sort of come-down scenes after that where you have the moment to process. But um, specifically in this one, the second time around, I did in fact notice that almost mental journey that he goes on of, oh, his mum just died, we'll come see him, see if I can poke fun at him too. Yeah. Oh, shit. Oh shit, I'm oh, not leaving no. this, this apartment alive. This isn't yeah. something that I get out of unchanged, if at all. Yeah. Which is a super, super interesting take, and it's really subtle. Like I said, I didn't notice it until the sec- second time I watched the movie. Yeah. But he is that sort of forgettable villain in the yeah, movie. Yeah, absolutely. 
when you are looking at the movie as a whole rather than dissecting it like we are, he's not something that would bring up you would bring up in your mind. He's very much something that is only a hey, actually, what was up with that guy? He was super shitty, you know, type of yeah, absolutely secondary thought. And with Gary, I think it's interesting because it shows a condition within Arthur's character in that. So far from what we've seen, he's slowly going off the deep end to becoming a cold-blooded killer, but then he doesn't kill Gary and says, you were, you were always nice to me, I'll let, and he lets him out and lets him go. Mm-hmm. And it's this sense that that is exactly what the Joker would do. Joker wouldn't kill someone who was only ever nice to him. Joker kills people who annoy him who try to hurt him who try to fuck with him but if it's someone who's just someone who is actively nice to him sure if it's people who are in the way they're getting killed but if it's just someone who is non-conditional to his success or to his path then he's not gonna kill them yeah and it's i really like that moment because it shows that yes he has because a lot of the movie we've been led to believe that a lot of situations, which they do, go over his head a bit and he doesn't realise certain things. And then suddenly in this exact scene you realise, oh, no, he understands more than we think he does. Yeah, there's more going on. And uh, actually, I'm glad that you said that because I was going to at some point point out, did you you start to recognise Arthur's laughter is very unique or distinct in that you can tell when he's laughing for real when he's laughing in pain and because it's hurting him or when he's faking it. Yeah, I I actually did notice that. In fact, I think a couple of my notes were even specifically like his laughter when he's on the bus seems very much in pain, something that he can't help. It almost comes out like hacks, like hacking offs. Painful noises, yeah. When he's in the cinema, like when he's stalking down Thomas to confront him and the Charlie Chapman movie, he's lightly chuckling to himself. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay. So it's not always, it's not like laughing in general brings on this fit. It's definitely more like linked to a psychosis rather than to specifically the act yeah. of laughing. And then when you can see that he kind of just sometimes just smiles and lets out like a bit of a huff. Yeah. Or I suppose the other one is when he's in the comedy club and he laughs a beat off almost the whole time. But yeah. it's a very deliberate laugh, I suppose, would be well, the way yeah, that Well, yeah, I, I think he's laughing at... Well, he's laughing at points where he thinks he should laugh, but because yeah. of his failure to empathize with other people, which was one of the things that I had seen people talk about, is that because he, f- he can't empathize with the people around him, he's laughing at points where he thinks he should laugh, and then he doesn't understand why people are laughing at the points that they're laughing at. Mm-hmm. And I find that really interesting, because it's, it's a very detailed depiction of, of a characterization of lack of empathy, and I find yeah. that really interesting. Another point where he laughs, where he's fake laughing, I find really interesting, is when he's leaving his work and he laughs and then just cuts it off once he's out of hearing range. Mm-hmm. And, I find and his that, face in yeah. that moment, I know exactly which moment because yeah. I also noted it down, actually. His face drops. Like, he doesn't just yeah. drop the laugh. He drops the, oh, I was playing nice for my the boss. The character, yeah. And it... it yeah. That's what really, I mean, can't sing Joaquin Phoenix's praises enough, but it's what leans really, well, what lends really well to his performance is that he just, he has this underlying sinisterness 
to him that's incredible to watch. Even in the first, obviously, we all know going into this that this is a movie about the Joker. So yeah. our, our main character is not going to be good and will probably be quite unhinged quite yeah. quickly. Like, it's a Joker film. We all know what's going to happen. We all know who the character is going to end up as in the yeah. background. But Joaquin does a really good way of showing us, even at the start, where they're trying to depict him as someone who is down on their luck and constantly gets beat on when they're down. He still manages to show that in the like first quarter of the film, underlying aggression and anger yeah. at what is happening to him. Like that he's not just naive and innocent in all of this type of vibe. Like it's not something that you pick up on a hundred percent of the time. It's definitely something that comes out quite subconsciously. Yeah. But it's really, really well done. Yeah, and I think with that we should jump to one of the characters that we should really talk about, Murray. Mm, I was wondering when you were going to bring Le- him up. Yeah, leading up to a point, he's Arthur's inspiration. After a certain point, he's his greatest enemy. And I find that really great as, as a point, because this is not a stereotypical character. Arthur is very much not even an anti-hero, he's a character who we see, who we watch go on a journey that in real life we would be terrified to see. He's he's like Norman Bates, he's like Patrick Bateman. Ah, okay. He's very much a character who isn't a good guy, he's not an anti-hero, he's a bad guy doing bad things, but we watch him anyway because it's like watching a train crash. And in that same vein, it's very much interesting to see how characters change around him or change within this character's perception so Arthur yeah so not even just change around him like in reaction to him but change in the way that he perceives them yeah and I think the change from hero or idol to enemy is really interesting and it leads to a point where Murray mocks his stand-up and then brings him on the show in an attempt to make fun of him a final time and I what I find really interesting this like mirroring of Reggie's bit where he came back to poke fun at Arthur one last time and he died for it and I find Mm -hmm. it really quite interestingly circular that Murray brings this guy on to make fun of him one last time and then make sure that he never gets into showbiz ever again and it ends up costing him his life. Yeah, it's a really fascinating kind of use of foreshadowing almost in that yeah. this, the, the two characters who cause Arthur the most kinds of pain end up paying the ultimate price and I would almost even say his mother does the ends up in the same kind of situation where she causes him the most harm and ends up dying it by his hands as well yeah it's really interesting the way that people flip because we can see yeah especially in the first half of the film before he like finds out about his mother you can even see the descent in his mind of her changing from a woman that he loves and needs to take care of to someone that even at the start before he gets his more sinister overtones I mean they've always been there as like undertones throughout the film yeah. before they become more overt an annoyance someone who is holding him back who doesn't support his comedy and is very vocal about it and is upsetting him in a way with her opinions yeah which is what I find super intriguing, I suppose, of that specific characterization. Yeah. Is that even the characters that you don't think 
will change in his perception do. And while he has this very childlike way of dealing with his emotions, e.g. becoming irritated at his mother because she tells him to stop with comedy or whatever she ends up saying that sets him off in that specific area. Yeah. To playing around with a gun, accidentally shoots the wall in the apartment, and immediately is like, oh shit, mum's gonna kill me. Yeah. You know? He's got this very interesting back and forth until he finally snaps and hits that point where he's like, no, actually, you deserve everything that's coming to you. And there are, in fact, a couple times in this movie, in fact, it's a recurring theme with suicidal ideation, where there's a lot of imagery of him pretending to or even getting ready to shoot himself with the gun. If only for at the last minute, like we've said, he goes on this show with Murray, the Murray show, and gets so worked up and so mad at his idol for just bringing him on to make fun of him that he turns around and in fact decides, no, you're the one that should go out. I'm going to stay around for yeah. a while. And what I what I like most about this characterization is that these three characters who end up dying at Arthur's hand, their characters never change at any point in this film. They don't have any character arcs they don't have anything like that they're consistently them what changes is arthur and once he's he develops to a point where he is his ideal self their behavior and the way they treat him is now unacceptable and i find that a huge break from the norm which is quite fun to watch from a a bystander kind of not a bystander standpoint but from a audience standpoint it's really incredible to see something just a little bit different but i think we should lead on to our kind of final points as we start to wrap up this in-depth review. So do you have any final points that you want to specifically say? I think my only points are that one of the things that I did want to bring up is Sophie as a character, the love interest of the film, is originally shown and it makes you actually question a lot of the interactions that Arthur has had with children specifically. It's shown that her daughter and the son uh, of the lady on the bus who yells at him giggle at him when he's making his clown faces but you wonder in that moment is that something that because he is a clown and he does all of these things for children that he's imagining himself i enjoy that the two children that we see both have the same reaction to him yeah one of the mothers kind of tries to play it off as a joke and the other mother turns around and is immediately like stop harassing my child you know yeah and it's a really interesting reflection into the two times that we get to see him interact with sort of younger people is that he definitely has this soft spot for them which i think that helps us empathize with him more he's not just a very unempathetic person the whole way through he definitely has little soft spots for specific people yeah but then also in that scene where he kills one of his friends and lets gary go as gary is trying to run out the door he spooks him because he thinks it's funny like there's that all very um there's this detachment from the rest of the world yeah i have a soft spot for you but i'm still doing things that amuse or satisfy me yeah even if they are possibly incredibly traumatizing or worrying to the people who are experiencing or watching them. Um, I just really, really like the way that they handle 
that mentality. Yeah, this is completely unrelated to a lot of what I'm going to say, but my final point is actually just one little thing that I noticed right at the end, which I actually kind of really enjoyed because it's such a funny inconsistency. So Mm. in the final scene where it's Murray and now the fully realized Joker having an interview and you get this ramping tension where you know something's going to happen, but your first expectation is that Arthur's going to shoot himself, Mm -hmm. but he's starting to get agitated and angry. And the line, you get what you fucking deserve, and then shoots Murray. One thing I noticed when it came to the TV screens where it draws out and it's all these screens showing the events surrounding the immediate aftermath of him shooting Murray and that scene being played over and over again because that's how TV sensors work or TV screens kind of work for that point where it's reviewing at a delay Mm. before it goes on to TV and there are like protests and stuff like that going on. I noticed one of the screens playing out that scene where he says that line and then shoots Mari, but fucking is censored. And I find that really funny because that means that a censor went by and he's like, he's got the 30 second delay and he hears Arthur go, you get what you fucking deserve. And he goes, oh, I'm gonna censor fucking. And then he didn't censor Arthur shooting Mari in the face. Which I find... Very, very intriguing, yeah. Yeah, which I find wild, in a, in a weird sense, because he's just like, got it, I am a great censor. Yeah, sensor. like, this is news. <laughs> I'm we the can't world's best censor. We can't... Yeah, but it's like... We can't, we can't have someone saying fucking, yeah. And then he beeps that, and then he's like, oh god, Murray's dead. He got shot in the <laughs> face on screen. But yeah, I wanted to leave it, like, on that kind of note. Closing up, what did you think of it as a whole... You don't have it to give the rating, but you, what did you think oh, about yeah, it as a whole? We did our rating in the other one. You'll just have yeah, to go yeah. and watch that. <laughs> but um, for me, it is an incredibly intense film. It is definitely not something that I would approach lightly with the sort of ideas that it's, you know, just something that you can watch. It's definitely one of those ones that if you do watch it, you will end up sitting, thinking on it for a little bit. Yeah. But it is a really good film, and I do still recommend, of course, within reason, always keep in mind your safety and the safety of the people around you um, who would possibly be watching this with you. But it's one that I do recommend watching. It's a really good watch, and it is a really good look into that sort of original comic DC universe, especially in pertainment to Gotham specifically. Yeah. I think it gets Gotham really right. I think this version of Joker is really interesting, really compelling to watch, and absolutely, like you said, gets the comic atmosphere down. But with that said, we're going to close out this episode of Movie Magpies. Hope you enjoyed. If you got the hint from last week, which was another film where the protagonist has a great dream, but the world just thinks it's one big joke, I kind of added the bit at the end to try and make it as obvious as I could without just straight up giving it away. Hopefully some of you got it. If you didn't, that's okay. You've got next week's hint, which is for those of you who want to find out what we're watching next week, go ahead and guess away. But this hint that we're giving you this week is another visually striking film in which there is no true good guys, only very bad, bad guys. So yeah, this one's a little more difficult, a little more challenging. I hope some of you take it on. 
try and figure it out. Um, I would love to hear any guesses that you guys have. Please do tell us. I am always very, very interested to see if anybody is actually guessing outside of, you know, you've got the couple people that you talk to and they kind of guess while you're chatting to them. But um, it is very interesting. I also think it's funny that you can almost tell how similar or how obvious the hint will be kind of relates to how well we could find a little thread to yeah. make the yeah. two things together. That is on us for sure. But <laughs> So like if the hint is really, really hard, don't beat yourself up about it. It's probably yeah. because we were both sitting here going Couldn't find a tenuous link. I'm How really, the yeah. heck is do we link this without just outright saying what the movie is or even at all? So Yeah, I'm super looking forward to reviewing the film next week. I'm so excited. You guys will find out why. <laughs> Please feel free to comment on our on our videos on YouTube. But with that said, that'll be us for this week. Thank you for listening. See you next week.